So this morning, especially for people at the sunrise service and the early service, it was kind of hard to tell. Are we coming here for an Easter service or a Christmas service? You know, it's so, so cold this morning. It's kind of crazy. And that reminded me of a story I heard about a, a good godly grandmother who was a little concerned that her daughter didn't fully understand the Christian meaning and significance behind the holidays that they celebrated as a family. So she said to her granddaughter one day, she said, Darling, can you tell me what Thanksgiving is all about? And the little girl thought for a minute and said, Well, that's the day that we thank the Indians for not letting the pilgrims starve to death. She was a little concerned about that answer, and so she said, Okay, well, why do we celebrate Christmas? She said, It's Santa Claus's birthday. So now the grandmother's very worried, and with much trepidation, she says, Well, what's Easter about? And the little girl said, oh, that's easy. That's the day we celebrate that Jesus came out of the tomb. And the grandmother sighed relief until the granddaughter said, and if he sees the shadow, there's six more weeks of winter. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so this morning I want us to think about what is Easter about? I think we all understand that it doesn't have anything to do with the groundhog seeing the shadow, right? But it also has anything to do with, with bunnies and chicks and eggs and candy either, does it? I mean, those things can be fine and fun, but we understand that Easter is about Jesus. It's about something so profound, so unique in human history, that 2,000 years later we celebrate it still. It changed the world at its most basic level. Divided history into the things that happened before and the things that happened after. It gave birth to the church and impacted everything else that has happened since. We celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the Son of God and the Messiah of Israel, did something that no one else has ever done. He rose from the grave never to die again. He proved once and for all that He was everything that He claimed to be. He was far more than what His disciples thought. He was far beyond what His critics and His enemies assumed that He was. He came to bring us so much more than what the hungry crowds were eager for with the miracles and the feedings. That's why we celebrate Easter. Now, we've spent the past three Sundays, or we've spent three Sundays together, looking at the horrors of Good Friday of what Jesus endured and experienced on the cross. We studied the seven statements that Jesus gave from the cross as He suffered and died a humiliating death, rejected by men, God the Father turning His back on Him because He took our sin and our shame upon Himself. He bore in His body our grief. By His stripes we are healed, all for the sake of saving lost humanity from eternal condemnation. And we talked about the fact that everyone at that cross, that Good Friday, even His disciples, even His closest friends, as they watched Jesus die, they thought this was the end. This was it. The end of their hopes and dreams. The end of the ministry. The end of the teachings and the miracles. This was it. But Easter reminds us this is not the end. It's not the end. The cross does not get the final say. Death is not the victor. Darkness lasts but for the night. Weeping endures only for the night because joy comes in the morning. Amen? 
The Easter story doesn't end with a funeral. It ends with a festival. Not with death and weeping, but with dancing and laughter. Not with tears, but with shouts of joyful triumph. But, I also don't want us to make the mistake of thinking that the resurrection story ends with Easter Sunday. It doesn't. Now, we kind of tend to treat Easter as like the culmination, the grand finale to this season that started 40 days ago on Ash Wednesday. And you have the season of Lent, and then you come into Holy Week with Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday, the happy ending to the gospel story. But that's not true. Easter isn't the end of the story. In fact, it's the beginning of a new story that never ends. And for that reason, the traditional Christian calendar treats Easter as the beginning of a 50-day season known as Easter Tide. So you have 40 days of Lent where we focus on weeping and, and, and remorse and fasting and repentance over our sin, but then Easter does it 10 days better of celebration and rejoicing and thanksgiving for the forgiveness of our sin. You see, the cross wasn't the end of the story. The empty tomb isn't the end of the story. The resurrection isn't the end of the story. It's the beginning of a whole new world. And for that reason, I'm not going to preach just one Easter message. I'm going to preach five. So I hope you brought lunch. No, I'm just kidding. So from beginning today, for the next five Sundays, we are going to dive in deep. Because I want us to, to reflect to study, to meditate on, and to live out the powerful reality that we live in a post-resurrection world. That day, that Sunday wasn't just the start of a new day. It wasn't just the start of a new week. It was the start of a new world, a new era in human history because Jesus Christ defeated death and He lives forevermore. The reality of Christ's resurrection reframes Everything. That's why we can look back through the empty tomb at Crucifixion Friday and call it good. Good Friday is only good because of Easter Sunday. And in the same way, we can look at everything we experience in this life, everything we'll ever experience in this life, through the lens of the resurrection. So it doesn't matter what you've experienced. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter what fears you're facing today. It doesn't matter what the future holds. Resurrection tells us this is not the end. Whatever it is, it's not the end of the story. Whatever it is, it doesn't get the last say. On that Easter Sunday morning, as the sun dawned, Jesus' followers thought it was the end. They thought it was all over. They thought there was nothing more to do than to grieve to come together, to try to sort things out and figure out where do we go from here and move on. That's what Mary Magdalene, Peter, John, Thomas, all the disciples, that's what they all were thinking and feeling that Sunday morning in Jerusalem. Even though Jesus had told them repeatedly, several times, what was going to happen. He had told them multiple times, look, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed in the hands of sinful men. They're going to falsely accuse me. They're going to beat me and put me to death. And then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. He told them this several times, yet this is still all a surprise and a shock to the disciples. Even when they discovered the empty tomb, even as they encountered the risen Lord, 
the truth of resurrection dawned on them slowly. Now, we can't be too hard on them because we're often just like them, aren't we? A little thick-headed, a little slow, a little stubborn to, to change and reframe our thinking. So as we reflect on the events of that Sunday morning, I want us to keep in mind the New Testament reading that we heard earlier where John tells us why he wrote his gospel. He wrote his gospel so that we might see the things that Jesus said and did. Not see the way Thomas did. Not able to touch his wounds and see him in the flesh necessarily. But through the gospels we can see all that Jesus said and did. And by seeing that we might believe in who Jesus is and that by believing we might live abundantly and eternally in His name. So I want you to think about these three words. See, believe, and live as we journey with the disciples through that first Easter Sunday. And we're going to begin together. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to begin in verse 1 after we pray. Father, thank You again for the time of worship and rejoicing the beautiful music we've already enjoyed together, the exuberance and joy of these children. And Father, as we now come to Your holy, inspired Word, we pray that Your Spirit would speak to us. Open our hearts, open our eyes, that we may see, believe, and truly live the resurrection life Jesus gives us. In His name we pray. Amen. So the first thing we see as this day begins, we see a faith eclipsed. We see a faith Eclipsed. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. Now, the other Gospels tell us she wasn't alone. There were other women with her, and, and it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So here Mary and the other women are, racked with grief. They are, they are grieving their Lord. They want to honor Him and respect Him because they still love Him. And so they are going to the tomb that morning to finish the job that was hastily done on Friday. Remember, as Jesus hung on the cross, it was Passover and it was going into Sabbath. And so it was a, like a double whammy holy day. And they couldn't have these bodies on the cross, so they had to come down. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who are secret disciples of Jesus, members of the religious order of the Sanhedrin, they came and took Jesus' body. They hastily wrapped His body and laid Him in the tomb. So Mary and the other women, you know, said, well, what the men have done isn't good enough. We get that, right, guys? So they're going to go on Easter Sunday morning and they're going to do it right. Now, on the way there, I imagine the conversation, wondering, now, when we get there, how are we going to move that stone? It's, it's large, it's heavy. Uh, we know the Roman guards have been posted there by the Sanhedrin. Are the guards going to even let us in? Maybe the guards will help us move the stone. So imagine their shock and surprise as they get to that garden and they look and they see no guards, at least not conscious. They're all passed out on the ground. And then they look at the tomb and they see no stone. It's been rolled away already. And so very cautiously they look inside and they see... No Jesus. No soldiers, no stone, no Jesus. And they don't understand. They're, they're alarmed. 
What did they see or what did they what they didn't see was profound. They didn't see Jesus. But what did they believe? Well, Mary tells us they believed that his body had been stolen. Somebody has taken his body and they've done something with it. Why? Why would somebody do this? And so obviously fear and confusion and all sorts of emotions overtake them. But what's interesting to me is that through all of this, their faith is never extinguished. Right? I mean, here they are coming to anoint Jesus' body with these spices and, and, and with these, these perfumes. Why? Because they respect Him. They love Him. The, the cross seemed like a failure, but they don't blame Jesus. They're not angry with Jesus. Their faith wasn't extinguished. It was simply eclipsed. Eclipsed by their fear. Their lack of understanding. Peter and John are in the same boat. The light of their faith was still there like the sliver of sunshine that comes up as it dawns in the morning. But their faith was there. The light was still there. Dim though it was, they still had faith. It was a faith eclipsed. Eclipsed by sorrow, eclipsed by fear and confusion, eclipsed by an apparent seeming defeat. It was eclipsed, but it was still there. And so secondly, we see it goes from a faith eclipse to a faith dawning. A faith dawning. Let's pick up the story in verse 3. At that, Peter and the other disciple... Now, whenever you read in John's Gospel, the other disciple or the disciple Jesus loved, that's John's way of referring to himself. So you've got Peter and you've got John, and they went out heading for the tomb, and the two were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Now, I, don't, I imagine that Peter and John had a little bit of rivalry going on there, you know. All these disciples at this point were like brothers. You know, this is kind of John's little way of saying, I got there first, I'm faster than Peter. So John gets there first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. And typical of Simon Peter, he runs right into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, who tells us that twice. He wants to make sure we know he got there first. Then he also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. What did John see when he got to the tomb first? What did he see? He saw an empty tomb. He saw grave clothes lying there. Not strewn about as if some grave robber had hastily come in there and unwrapped the body and stolen it. No, they're laying there in the shape of the body, almost as if the body just passed right through it and left them behind. That's what John saw. What did Peter see? Well, Peter, running into the tomb, sees the same thing, but he sees more. He also sees the cloth that was around Jesus' head folded neatly and lying off to the side. Again, not something you would expect to see if somebody came and stole away Jesus' body. Now, what did they believe, though? That's what they saw. What What did Peter believe? Well, at this point, we don't really know. But we know what John believed. Because it says that John saw and believed. What did he believe? He believed that Jesus was alive. That's what he believed. Now, verse 9 tells us they still didn't fully understand the significance 
of all of this, but their faith was dawning. It was coming to them. Now, I want you to notice in verses 5 through 8, three times John uses the word saw. They saw. But every one of those words in the Greek, the language the New Testament was written in, is a different word. And it's significant. There's a progression here. So in verse 5, John looked inside the tomb, right? He's just kind of looking through the door, and he saw. Now, that Greek word, blepi, means to just notice, to glance and observe, right? So you walk into a room, you just kind of look in, and you observe things. You just notice stuff. It's a very basic level of seeing. But in verse 6, when Peter went into the tomb, all the way in, you know, you get a much a broader detail of what he saw in there because the Greek word there is the word theopi, and it means to look carefully, to study and observe with sustained concentration. So John kind of looks in and sees gray plots. Peter goes in, he studies the room. He's taking it all in. He's noticing everything. He's carefully observing the scene. Now, the third word is the most important in verse 8, when it says that John then went in and saw and believed. That Greek word is Iden, and it means to perceive with understanding. He didn't just see with his eyes, he saw with his mind and with his heart. He saw, and what he saw began to dawn on him with understanding, and so John believed that Jesus was alive. The faith that was eclipsed was beginning to dawn in the light of resurrection truth. But for Peter and John, right now, their faith is based on evidence. It's based on what they see with their eyes. They see the burial cloths. They see the empty tomb. But listen to me. True saving faith has to be more than a seeing is believing mentality. It has to be more, as Jesus tells Thomas. He said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. You know who Jesus is talking about there? You and me. He's talking about us. We can't see Jesus in the flesh and touch His wounds as Thomas did. We, we can't go into that empty tomb and see the burial cloths lying there as Peter and John did. But you know what we have? We have the Scriptures. We have the inspired Word of God, the recording of these events. We have the eyewitness accounts of people that Jesus appeared to for 40 days after His resurrection. We have the example, the striking transformation of these disciples who went from men who were so cowardly, they ran away and abandoned Jesus and denied they even knew Him. And after this event, every one of these men are willing to lay down their lives and die for the risen Lord. That's some powerful evidence for us to see. Most importantly, we can see the transformation that happens in the hearts of the people around us when they come to faith in Jesus. That's what we can see. Maybe this morning your faith has been eclipsed for whatever reason. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you were active in church and serving the Lord for, for a period, but you've kind of grown cold. You used to read your Bible and pray every day. Now you pick it up every once in a while. You, you pray when there's a problem. You come to church on occasion, like, like today. For whatever reason, your faith has been a, be, become eclipsed. Not extinguished. You still believe in Jesus. You still know there's something to this. But it's like something is blocking you from going any further. It's like there's a stone that's been rolled over the door of your heart and it's eclipsing your faith. 
Maybe this morning the reason you're here is because your faith is beginning to dawn. You're beginning to to grow in your hunger and thirst for the things of God. You're beginning to come to a new understanding. You're beginning to recognize that there's an emptiness in your life that only Jesus Christ can fill. I want you to hear me today. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, repeatedly calls people just like you to come and follow Him. And He tells them, come and see. Come and see. Come and watch me. Come and learn from me. That's what John did. John came and saw. He went to the empty tomb and he saw and he began to believe. And when we let down our guard, when we open our heart to the truth of God's Word, the resurrection truth of Jesus Christ, and we let Him roll away the stone of doubt, the stone of cynicism, the stone of of fear or past hurts, when we let Him roll that away, whatever it is eclipsing our faith, then we can begin to see and believe and live. I pray that your faith, if it's been eclipsed, today will begin to dawn. And when a dawning faith continues to grow, then third, we see it becomes a faith shining out for the world to see. A faith shining. That's our goal. That's where we want to be. Let's pick it up in verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there but did not know that it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, Why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what He had said to her. So by the time Mary has returned to the tomb, Peter and John have come and they've left. And Mary, still thinking Jesus is dead, is left alone there with her grief, and her questions, and her fears. And what did Mary see? Well, she saw more than just uh, no stone and no Jesus. She looks in and sees the place where He lay, the burial cloths, but this time she sees something else. She sees two angels in white. Two men dressed in glorious, radiant lightning, sitting at either end of where Jesus lay. What Mary sees is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. You may remember it in the Old Testament. In the Holy of Holies, first in the tabernacle, later in the temple in Jerusalem, you had the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And the top, the lid of this Ark was called the Mercy Seat. It had two cherubims that were facing it with their wings touching. And in that space between those two angels is where the glorious presence of God resided on earth. And no one could enter into this place but the high priest once a year. 
when He brought in the blood of a spotless lamb to cover over the sins of the people. What Mary saw that day, what she would eventually come to understand, is that we have a new mercy seat. That Jesus Christ is the mercy seat. He is the presence of God on earth. And it is Jesus' own blood shed for us that covers over our sin. You see, Jesus may have died between two thieves as the sacrificial lamb, but He arose between two angels as our high and holy priest. That is what Mary saw. On the cross, Jesus' atoning work has been completed. On the cross, by God's grace, a great exchange occurs. Our sin for His righteousness... His death for our life. And now the empty cross and the empty tomb stand as the receipts for God's saving work. The empty tomb is the proof that Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God, died for our sins, risen victorious over death, hell, and the grave. It is finished. He has done it. That's what Mary saw. But bless her heart, She doesn't quite understand it yet. Maybe it's the depth of her grief. Maybe it's that her eyes are clouded with tears. But as she turns and looks out the opening of that tomb, she sees silhouetted against the rising sun, Jesus, and doesn't even know that it's Him. It's tragic, really, that Mary is here weeping when she could be rejoicing. She looks and she sees Jesus and thinks He's a gardener, and and really kind of He is, right? He's the ultimate gardener, the first and the last gardener. But she doesn't fully understand. But what I love the most here is that Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't get on to her for not understanding. He doesn't rebuke her for crying. He doesn't tell her, oh, ye of little faith. No, He tenderly reveals Himself to her, simply speaking her name, Mary. The name He said the day He cast the demons out of her and redeemed her. And He says her name once more, and she instantly knows it's her Lord. It's Jesus. You know, it reminds me of John 10.3 where Jesus said the sheep listen to His voice. He calls His own sheep by name and He leads them out. She recognizes the voice of her shepherd. He calls her by name. And Mary's faith went from eclipsed to dawning, to blazing in the blink of an eye. She's overjoyed. She grabs a hold of Jesus' feet in worshipful awe and loving celebration. So then why does Jesus tell her to let go? Why does Jesus tell her don't cling to Him? See, this is where our faith has to shine. Mary had a job to do. She had to go and tell the other disciples what she has seen and heard. That she has seen Jesus, she has touched Jesus, and He's got a message for them. You see, seeing and believing and living is about so much more than just you and me. It's about so much more than just where I'm going to spend eternity after I die. Don't get me wrong, that's important. But it's also about shining the light of Christ for others so that they can see, believe, and live. It's about being a part of God's kingdom come and His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. It's about taking up our cross daily and bearing it so that other people might know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Yes, Jesus invites us to come and see, to come and follow Him. But once we do, He then commissions us to go and tell. To go and share the good news 
with others. You see, it would have been a selfish and disobedient thing for Mary just to stay there, clinging on to Jesus, keeping Him all to herself. And in the same way, we can't just sit here week after week keeping Jesus to ourselves. Amen? We've got to go out of these walls and shine the light of our good works before others that they might see the Father and give Him glory. We've got to go and tell the good news and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all the things that Jesus Christ commands us. That's the great commission enacted right here with Mary. You and I have got world-changing news. And there are people in our lives out there that are facing things that seem hopeless. And they think this is the end. There's no way past this. There's no getting over this. There's no making up for this. This is the end. And we've got news to tell them it's not the end. I've seen the Lord. He's alive and He lives in me. And He wants to live in you and make all things new again. Have you seen the Lord? That's my first question for you. Have you seen the Lord? You can't tell other people about a Lord you've not seen. You can't give a gift to other people that you yourself have not received. And it's one thing to accept and believe up here a doctrine that Jesus Christ came and He lived a sinless life, He died on the cross, rose from the grave. It's one thing to accept that up here. It's another thing entirely to believe it and to live it down here. To have not just a factual-based Uh, doctrinal-based belief in your head, but to have a personal saving relationship with the risen Lord. One where He can call your name and you hear His voice and respond. Do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus? You see, it's not just enough to say Jesus Christ lived. That's a historical fact that no serious scholar would ever question or debate. But it's also not enough just to say Jesus Christ lived lives. Now that's a step in the right direction. You're going from a historical fact to historical faith. But what you need to experience the saving grace of God is a faith that says not only that Jesus Christ lived, not just that Jesus Christ lives, but that Jesus Christ lives in me. That I know Him. That I have given my life to Him and He has come to be a part of my life every single day. Does Jesus Christ live in you? Is that the kind of faith that you have? If you don't have that kind of saving faith, if you can't say for certainty that Jesus lives in you, you can know that today. Today you can experience the gift of grace where Christ comes and takes away your sin, removes your shame and doubt. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter what you're dealing with today. It doesn't matter what tomorrow holds. This is not the end. Whatever it is, Jesus Christ wants to give you a new beginning. He wants you to know that God's mercies are new for you every single morning. And He wants you to have a life today that's abundant and a life that's eternal. I invite you in just a few minutes as we stand to sing to come and to say, David... I believe that there is a Jesus. I believe what the Bible says, but I've never asked Him into my heart. I've never given my life to Him. I've never come to the point where I realized I needed a Jesus. And I gave Him my life. Would you come and do that today? Today, 
can be an Easter Sunday like you've never known. Today can be the day that you encounter the risen Lord and you can go out these doors and tell other people, I've seen the Lord and He lives in me. Maybe for you, you are a Christian. You know that you're going to heaven when you die. You know that you belong to Jesus. You can remember the day you gave your life to Christ. But for you, there's just like a stone that's rolled back across your heart. And you feel like your faith is dimming. You feel like your faith is eclipsed. Maybe it's grief. Maybe it's the things just haven't been working out in life for you. Maybe it's a past mistake. Whatever it is, Satan is trying to keep a lid on your faith. Jesus wants to roll that stone away this morning. If you just come to Him and say, God, I want to renew my life to You. I just want You to remove whatever this is that's blocking my faith, whatever it is that's keeping me quiet, whatever it is that's keeping me from sharing the gospel with other people, roll it away, Jesus. I want my faith to shine. The altar is open, and I'll be standing here to pray with you, to help you make whatever decision the Holy Spirit is laying upon your heart. Let's stand together and pray. And then we're going to sing together. And I hope that you'll be obedient to whatever the Spirit of God is saying to you. Father, thank you for this day of resurrection, this day of new life, this day that changed every day that has ever followed and ever will. And Father, if there's anyone here today, Lord, that has never experienced that resurrected Christ in their life, that power of a new beginning, I pray that they would come today. If there's anyone here who feels like their faith is there, but it's been eclipsed, or it's beginning to dawn on them in a new way, or just something has been keeping them from really being able to shine out the good news to others that need to hear it, Lord, I pray that You would move in their hearts and help them to come and to just release whatever the fear, whatever the burden, whatever the the situation may be, to release it into Your hands. God, if you can raise a dead man back to life, there's nothing in our lives that's impossible for you. So help us to trust you. Help us to walk in your goodness. In the name of Jesus, we pray.